I'm your host, Nancy Trader. Welcome to the Stop Digging Podcast, where we'll help you dig out of whatever hole you're in. Here, you can connect with experts to listen and learn from their experience and get advice for your challenges in business, wellness organizations, and relationships. Here, you can borrow from others and find what you need to create the life and work you want. Hello, and welcome to the Stop Digging Podcast. I'm Nancy, and I'm here with my co-host, Susan. Hey, Susan. Hello. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, I've been thinking about sometimes when we, uh, I have to go and visit family soon. And, you know, I'm feeling a little anxious about having conversations with them because, yeah, some, sometimes we don't always see eye to eye. And I thought that a great topic for a conversation would be to figure out how to talk to people when we have these difficult conversations. And we've got a great guest today who's going to help us with that. Well, I'm excited about our guest too, because you know, I'm passionate about teaching people to have great conversations as well, not just in the workplace, but as you said, in our personal lives, you know, in America, we know that we are very polarized right now, politically speaking, but even in normal conversations, people are very, very much more aggressive about what they believe and why they believe it. And it is difficult now to find conversations in a social context where both parties feel heard. And I will give you an example. There's so much research out there that I could talk the whole time about all the research about how polarized this country is. But I also want to share with our international audience that you know as well as I do how polarizing conversations, especially difficult ones, can be when there's a difference of opinion, thought, belief, condition, situation, even economic circumstances. And finding a common ground where both people feel heard is difficult. And so here's my here's my big research. Not to bore anybody, but I was on Twitter and Elon Musk, one of the most polarizing personalities in, in leadership and uh, corporate life, posted this, or his people did, and I thought it absolutely personified and encapsulated all of the research about being polarized in this country and around the world. And forgive my language, but he basically, the post said, F it, just start arguing in the comments, ready, go. And people did, but I started laughing because I thought, wow, nothing was even said. And people were just ready to jump in there and start posting their arguments. And I thought that is just what happens today. I mean, sitting at a Thanksgiving table and you say one thing, somebody says, oh, you must be a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. And then the conversation gets set on fire. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, yeah, then it just gets out of control. Even in public spaces, you know, you say the wrong thing or something you believe and it gets mashed up and twisted and all of a sudden you're a label and not a human. So uh, I'm really excited about our guest right now because if you're tired like I am of watching arguments, seeing arguments and getting baited into arguments, (laughs) this is the perfect guest for you to be listening to this podcast because this is what her job is. So I'd love to welcome Elizabeth Dahl. She is a red person living in a blue community. But as the director for the Braver Angels, she is at the forefront of a national movement to bridge the partisan divide that we find ourselves in. She helps bridge that gap and balance between conservatives and progressives at all levels of leadership. And she works with volunteers in communities and college campuses, in the media, and in politics, because she wants to help heal the rancor that seems to be tearing us apart. So welcome, Elizabeth. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. You know, sometimes we don't have a straight path that leads us into the work that we're doing today. And we all kind of have, whether we're a hero or villain, we have a backstory, an origin story. So Elizabeth, can you tell me a little bit about how you got started in this uh, line of uh, work that you're doing? Yeah. My origin story is actually that I kind of stumbled into it accidentally through political work. My background is political consulting and campaign management. And I was working in politics in Washington State. I got my start very early. I was still a teenager. 
And I saw political polarization affecting people, affecting campaigns, affecting friendships and families in really the worst ways. I watched people shout at each other, even though I knew they barely disagreed. I saw people stop talking to each other when I knew that they really cared about each other because they just couldn't get past a partisan disagreement. It really bothered me a lot. And so I started thinking about what I could do to change that and what I could do to mitigate it. Then I moved to Bainbridge Island, where I am in more of a minority than I was when I lived on the south end of the county. And it became even a little bit more difficult to have those conversations because just the mere fact that I worked in politics on the wrong side of the aisle for Bainbridge was extremely alienating and people would tend to make a lot of assumptions about me and freak out before they got to know me as a person. And then when they did get to know me as a person first, like, oh, well, you're really reasonable. And you know what you're talking about. And you say really interesting things that make me think. You're a good Republican. Like, wait a minute. I, I didn't, I don't let, I don't hate you. What's wrong with me? Uh, and as I started to build those relationships and to bridge that divide with people, I started thinking about how I could do that on a greater scale and started organizing dinners between Republican and Democratic women on Bainbridge. And through one of those dinners that I organized, a friend of someone who attended one asked if I was interested in coming to an event she was organizing called a Red Blue Workshop. And that workshop was a Braver Angels workshop. I walked in, I experienced my very first workshop, which was their signature workshop, and said, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I'd imagine. This is exactly the way I'd envisioned that it needs to happen. And there's already a national framework I'm plugging myself into this. And I have been with Braver Angels as a volunteer ever since. And then I joined staff a year and a half ago when we started thinking about how we could influence and impact the political culture for the better to depolarize the politics side of things rather than just the individual side of things. I was pushed up to volunteer leadership because of my political background and then our efforts gained traction and became way too much for volunteers to run. And they decided to bring me on staff as the director of the program. Can I ask a question here too, just out of curiosity? You described the hatred conversations where people are surprised and confused that they should hate you. They feel that they should hate you because you feel differently. When you walked into that, that workshop for the first time, what was it that was different about that that made you feel like this is where I belong? There was red-blue balance, which was the very first thing that I had thought about when I was thinking about how to mend the divide and how to help people understand each other, was that it had to be something equally contributed to by people on all sides of the divide, because otherwise it would be distrusted by either one side or the other. And then also it was volunteer-led, and it was happening from the grassroots up. Volunteer-lead, I felt, was really important because sometimes when you are talking about people who are being paid to do it, you end up with them trying to fulfill a paycheck or perpetuate the organization rather than actually in it for the right reasons of trying to change the culture and really seeking to better understand people around them who disagree with them and help others do similarly. And then additionally, it was really important to me that it come from the grassroots because when I was thinking about affective polarization and how that looks and how the contours of what some of the underlying causes are, namely distrust, interpersonal and institutional, I realized that if it was perceived to be coming from the government or perceived to be coming from elites, or perceived to become someone that was quote-unquote other than people just like you, that it would also be distrusted. And so it was really important that it be driven you know, at the local level. And here was this organization doing literally all of that. Well, you know, that's what's funny 
when you're talking about the political realm and starting there, you know, back in the old days, I hear from the fifties that, you know, you never talk politics, you never talk religion in social circles, if you want to get along with people. And yet that is the core of who people are because it's tied to their beliefs. And, you know, rule number one in anthropology is that people don't do things for no reason. People always have a reason and a rationale for doing whatever it is that they're doing, for believing whatever it is that they're believing. And even if you think it's silly to believe in an Aztec God, right? The Aztecs, it was very logical and there was a rationale for it, right? And we forget that when we're talking about people in in their religious and their political beliefs. So I am really excited about the work that you're doing because it speaks to the core of where trust happens at the core of their humanity, which is who I am and what I believe. Yeah, that's, that's it. Exactly. The thing that always impresses me the most is how, you know, Susan, you were talking about how speaking about politics, people didn't speak about politics and religion. I, I was in the army for 12 years. We didn't talk about politics and religion because it was off topic. You didn't do it. And that was good because we weren't supposed to have, take a stand on anything. We had to be, you know, neutral when you're in uniform. But, you know, as a civilian now, I can have an opinion. But today, it's very difficult to, you know, if you want to get along with everyone, it's difficult to have an opinion. But the challenge is, you know, how do we talk to one another when people are so highly charged and will often tie things back to religion and politics? So how do you, how do you handle that, Elizabeth? We start by setting ground rules on the conversation when we bring people together that disagree with each other. We ask that people only represent themselves. They're not speaking to any broader community. They're not speaking on behalf of any larger group. They shouldn't be considered representative of anything except themselves and their own personal beliefs and opinions. We require people to respect each other. We tell them, you all learned this when you were kindergartners. Don't roll your eyes at the other person. Don't say anything that is extremely rude. Don't call them names. Like just normal, common human dignity and respect. And then we say you know, curiosity questions. Ask people questions that are curious, exploratory, that are raw, that are answerable, most importantly. Uh, don't ask questions that have intent built into them, an assumption of intent built into them. Um, and then we guide people back on track if they start to move away from that. And we also have workshops that teach people how to ask a curious question and what a curious question looks like. And we kind of do that by actually removing it from the realm of politics. And um, one of my colleagues, Monica Guzman, uh, who's written a great book. Isn't she a reporter for the Seattle Times? Uh, she was. She works for Braver Angels. She's our, what do we call her, senior fellow of public practice now. Um, she was our director of story digital storytelling. Uh, she also worked for Crosscut, and she also co-founded a editorial outlet called The Ever Gray. But she wrote a book called, I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. And she has a workshop that she does that is just to teach people intellectual curiosity, where she asks them to pick a topic that she kind of has prepped a list for. And some of them are not political at all. Some of them are dogs, cats, or no pets for example, is one of the things that you can ask about. Uh, a favorite childhood memory is another thing. And she just has people ask each other questions, only questions, for four minutes and see what that feels like. The, the thing about curiosity is, in order to have it, you have to assume that you don't know everything. That is a practice in humbleness, <laughs> which all leaders need to have in leadership development circles, we know this and we teach this because if you know everything and you're the expert, you can't listen to your people. So you don't know when your ship's running aground because they're not telling you because you don't know how to listen. 
And, and the same thing I imagine is the case in other arenas as well, is that to be curious, you have to assume that even though your opinions are strong, rational to you, serve a purpose, make sense, you still don't know everything. Yeah, that you might still have something to learn about why other people behave the way that they do, how other people believe the things that they do, and the rationale that they have, because it might be different from yours, and it might be different than what you've assumed of them. And that is something that I think, especially in politics and religion, because it is so tied to how people conceive of themselves, that they lose that. And when you get out of the realm of politics and you ask them to ask questions about something complete that they think of as completely divorced from that, they, A, start to build a relationship with each other as people, which helps them to see past those preconceptions that they might have had walking into it. But it also teaches them, oh, right, this is what it is to not know something. This is what it is to just ask curiously. Okay, now apply this same practice to politics and religion. Apply the same practice to the things that you were thinking that you know, but maybe now you're thinking you don't. And actually, it would be really interesting to learn about someone and understand them better. What that sounds like to me is bringing vulnerability and active listening skills into that conversation. 100%. A lot of what I do is teaching active listening. Yeah. And, and it's so important as a reporter, when I talk to people, you know, I do a lot of listening and engaging with them, but I'm always trying to ask those curious questions. And because I've been like doing this for a long time, I'm used to it. But every once in a while, I even will run into a conversation where I have to stop and think, hmm, how do I feel? You know, that's like causing me to have some feelings here. So, you know, you were talking about, you know, building that relationship and that trust. What do you do as you move into the conversation to move into a deeper conversation? We encourage them to remember what a curious question looks like uh, and to remember the dignity of the individual and also to treat people as though they're engaging in good faith, because that is really, really tough sometimes when you're talking about controversial issues, and when you're talking about something that, like you said, makes you feel a lot of things really deeply. It can be hard to just notice your feelings and not react based on them. And that's something that takes a lot of ongoing practice, which is why we continue our workshops, which is why we ask people to come back. And we have volunteer alliances all over the country that people participate in on a regular basis. It's really honing that skill of noticing instead of just reacting to the things that you feel. It's okay to have big feelings. I have big feelings. I have strong opinions. The important part is that you ask yourself when you feel something, why do I feel this way? What am I reacting to that they've said? And then often you can ask a clarifying question or a curious question that helps you better understand their perspective. And sometimes it's not actually what you thought it was when you were really feeling emotional about it. Sometimes they meant something different by a word than, you, than what you thought they meant by a word. I find often, especially in politics, we're talking past each other because we're using the same words, but they have different meanings to different people. And we're saying very different things with them. And it's important to be able to build the skill set to ask the clarifying questions that will help you understand both the similarities and the differences and to be able to pull apart what someone means by the words that they're using and not just assume that you know what they're trying to say. Well, you know, there's, there's a few nuggets of gold. You've got me going in like a million directions. It's hard to, you know, I have a million questions for you, but you were talking about trust and clarifying questions in, in a way that's reality checking your own emotions, right? Making sure that you're feeling what you're feeling for a real reason and not just a perceived reason, like, like what you were saying. But the other thing that you mentioned earlier in the conversation, even in the prep work that you do for conversation is about not asking with intent 
questions with intent. And, and the reason I'm honing in on that is because a few times you, you talked about that and there's nothing that makes a person feel more triggered than when they feel like the other person has an agenda. Like, it's not just that you're sharing your own feelings, but you're trying to convert me to your political views. Right. And, and maybe, maybe there is room for growth. Maybe I do need to change. Maybe I'm not the same as I was, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 25 years ago. Right. So, so maybe there, there is growth that I have not been recognizing that in my own self, you know, awareness that could be addressed. But if I feel that somebody is trying to make me go there, I, I, I'm just, I'm not going to, I'm going to shut down. I'm going to defend myself. Even if I don't believe it 100% anymore, I'm still going to defend myself because I'm feeling like you're manipulating me. Right. And that's actually the other thing that's at the core of what Braver Angels does. There are really two mantras that we hold to very tightly that are both in the a version of our each in the platform that we just recently wrote and passed at our convention in July which are one, that no one is not worth talking to. All voices should be heard. And then secondly, that we don't try to change each other's minds. That's not the point. Political depolarization is not changing someone else's mind about politics. It is changing their attitudes toward each other and changing your own attitudes toward other people. Wow. Say that again. I, that is so powerful. Say that again. I, if you can remember what you said, I mean, I just feel like people really need to hear that. It's not changing someone else's mind about politics. It's not changing your mind about politics. It's about changing your attitude toward other people and about changing other people's attitudes toward each other. The way that we treat each other, the way that we interact as human beings, as individuals who share a community who share grocery stores and churches and sports teams and schools and nonprofit organizations. It's, it's about being able to be in community and know each other and love each other and respect each other and understand and recognize that we have strong differences. We also have more common ground than we think. Both of those things can be true. And both of those things can exist within a strong community. That is such a powerful thing to remind people about because, you know, during the pandemic, we saw communities pull together in a big way and do really hard things. But we also saw how we became so isolated that our ideas and perceptions became very, very, what's the word, uh, hardened (laughs) or um, honed, you know? And so when we came back together, there was this huge like conflict. We were like atoms bumping into each other and causing these little mini explosions, you know? And we're, we're still seeing this behavior, but I think it's softening. And, you know, and through these conversations like Braver Angels is having around the country and also other people who are stepping forward and doing that, I feel like this thought and this movement is starting to spread. And I know in particular here where we live, where Elizabeth and I live on Bainbridge Island, we've seen it in our community and with a couple of the politicians that we we have known. Um, So it's, it's really nice because in the mix of all that things can, can happen. So I I love that Elizabeth. I have a question too about, Well, okay. First of all, let me just say this. We all know that social media filters out everything now, right? So you are only going to see things in your feed from people and friends that believe like you do anyway, because they have, you know, bots in there figuring out and filtering out, you know, other people's beliefs. The algorithm. And also, we also know from political realms that to get out the vote, you know, you got to get your people out there, right? Their messaging is purposely polarizing, right? Mm-hmm. You got to stir up their base. So when you create a crisis, like we, you know, you want to pull all your people together, you know, 
if, if this doesn't happen, if you don't come out, if you don't contact your congressman, it's the end of the world as we know it. Every election is always the most important election of your life. <laughs> exactly. Every, and every, every appointment is the end of the world if the wrong person gets in and, you know, and the end of our country, the end of the world, right? And, and I think that the tactics that are used, which are effective in the short term in activating people, can seem very real and become real in people's lives. How do you address it if you do? And how do you manage that when it's part of the conversation? This is one of the things that I'm trying to do with my Braver Politics program in Braver Angels is work on both ends of what I consider to be a negative feedback loop, which is that elected officials hear from their loudest, most polarized constituents because they're the ones that show up to everything. They're the ones that contact them on a regular basis. And so they think that they have to respond to those constituents. Those are the people whose needs they need to reflect and whose desires they need to reflect. And so their behavior starts to reflect the desires of that group. And then simultaneously, you have this group who believes because they're hearing from people reflecting them that they're, quote unquote, fighting for them. And this is how you make win policy wins. And this is how you win things. And this is how you gain your political advancement. They think that this is the only way to be an effective politician. And so they're not going to vote for anyone who doesn't sound really polarizing and awful because no one else is fighting for them. And it frustrates me a lot. I'm trying to do two things. One, I am providing tools to elected officials uh, in the form of skills workshops, managing difficult conversations with constituents, managing difficult conversations with colleagues, teaching them how to have healthier conversations with frustrated constituents, how to de-escalate those conversations in a way that still leaves their constituents feeling heard and understood, how to think through the different vocabulary that different groups of people from different areas might be using with different backgrounds, how to ask questions to get at the underlying why driving a person's anger. Because often, you know, they might come to you saying one thing when they're actually angry about something else. They've just identified the thing they're talking about as what they think will get their desired goal. And sometimes they're wrong about that. And so as an elected official, it can be really tricky to figure out what their actual originating complaint is or their originating concern. And so we help elected officials and candidates and their staff members get at that on one side. And then on the other side, I am working with normal voters, your average checked out Americans who are just really frustrated by the rancor, who are really, really bothered by the negative advertising, who would love to see more accuracy from their candidates, from their electeds, who would really like to see more perspectives engaged and uh, a little bit more pragmatism in policy. And I'm teaching them to become political activists for the cause of political depolarization, starting in their own backyards, because that's where they can have the most impact. And I'm also encouraging them and teaching them how to push back in their own tribes when they hear and see things that they think are wrong, that they hear that are really polarizing, that are inaccurate stereotypes and giving them the community, the backstop to be able to say, no, please don't do this. That's not accurate. You know, I, I love what you're doing and I want better policy in this direction, but I would like you to be accurate in the way that you talk about it. I would like you to not fear monger. I would like you to not exaggerate. I would like you to honestly appraise us of what is or isn't happening and what different people think about this. Hello, friends. Thanks for listening. A-Squared Lamp Groups powers this podcast. Their memberships are tax-deductible donations that directly support their work developing people and organizations. But just for you, they're offering podcast listeners a special 40% off coupon code to join. Your benefits as a member include additional resources, perks, and access that you can use all year. 
including an additional 30 minutes of bonus podcast content for every episode. Simply use the code for listeners at checkout. That's the number four, all caps, listeners at checkout. They also are giving our listeners free gifts to use now. Go to their website, asquaredlamps.org forward slash podcast and download your free My Success Course of Action Worksheet. There is no cost, registration, or sales pitch involved. Just click it and save. Use it to work on something significant to you this month, maybe even something that sparks interest from today's podcast. Then click to join our free but private Stop Digging Podcast LinkedIn group, where the conversation continues between you, the hosts, and our guests. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And now, back to the program. I'm thinking about visiting some family members, and I'm not as conservative as they are. And they always like to like bait me, call me out. And I try to be, I try to veer away from those triggering conversations because I want to be there to talk to them and visit with them and spend time with them. But because like, the TV's on in the background and it's that, you know, constant megaphone of vitriolic conversations. You know, I, I have a really hard time doing what you're just saying about, you know, when I, when I question them and say, where did you hear that? Because I, they often say, well, they say, and I'm like, well, who is they? And they can't tell me. And then they'll say, they'll tell me some conspiracy theory. And I'm like, where did you hear that? Well, I, I, I heard it on the news. What news? Which station did you hear it on? Which newspaper did you read that in? And so because I want facts. And whenever I push back and just ask the simple question of where did you hear that, I suddenly get attacked. And it's really hard. And I know I'm not the only one. And, you know, what do I do? <laughs> and what do, you know, our listeners do when confronted with that? Yeah, I've had this exact conversation with my grandma, who is much more liberal than I am. (laughs) And she always has cable news on in the background, just like you just said. And they said, well, who's they? Well, they did. Okay. Well, where did you hear that? I don't know. Somewhere it was on the news. Okay, cool. The, The best thing that you can do and what I've often done is try to get at, again, that underlying concern. Because you can go round and round in circles on trying to establish facts. And the reality is that often you're not going to get any satisfying answers to those questions. It's just not going to happen. They're not going to remember everything perfectly. They're not going to change their minds if you suddenly supply them with a counterfact. This often also because they see they see you as outside their tribe as not belonging to the same political tribe that they do. And so uh, there's some research that shows people are actually less likely to believe corrections and more likely to believe the same thing that they believed before when they're confronted with a counter argument from someone that they see as outside their tribe. Whereas if they're corrected by someone within their tribe, they're much more likely to accept that correction And their belief in the thing that they had previously stated uh, drops significantly rather than them being more convinced of it. So that's just something to have in your brain when you are having these conversations. But I I try to go back to the underlying concern. Like, what? why is this something that matters to you? What is it that concerns you about this issue? And what are you, what are you worried about? What do you value around it? And then we can have a conversation about what they actually feel and what they think. And we've gotten away from the conflict over where they heard it or who they heard it from or how correct their perception of the issue is. And instead, we're arguing about the thing that we can't argue about, their opinion. And having a conversation about it instead of a direct, I'm right, you're wrong argument. It's a little bit more, a little bit more of a dialogue and a little bit less of a head-on argument. 
Yeah. So I have another question. Like when, what I've experienced too, when you're having these difficult conversations or it's like a shouting match, I get kind of overwhelmed. Um, what's the word? There's another word for it, but uh, flooded, right? I get flooded with emotions because I don't want to fight with my loved ones. I want to visit with them and have conversations about normal things like, how are you doing? Or, you know, are you okay? And what do you, have you gone fishing lately? And like, sometimes I have to put, you know, a stop to the conversation. And oftentimes I think people don't know how to do that. So do you have any good examples of how to do that? What Nancy just described is what I call the the escape pod. (laughs) (laughs) Build an escape pod before you start the conversation. So you know how to get out. (laughs) Yes. Uh, We, we call it the exit strategy at Braver Angels. And I think that actually what you just described works fairly well. It's okay to just say, hey, you know, this is a lot for me right now. And can we talk about something else? That's that's okay. It's okay to acknowledge that you have emotions. It's okay to acknowledge that you would rather talk about something else. Acknowledging that you would like to move on is not losing the conversation, not losing the argument. It's setting a boundary. And it's deflecting. And that's okay. It's not a problem to do that. And I think often people are afraid that they will be perceived as you know, having lost the argument, that their relative will perceive themselves as having won. They're concerned that they'll get made fun of if they back down. And so they're afraid to set up boundaries. But the reality is with families, you just have to do that sometimes. And sometimes you can deflect other ways. You can change the conversation. You can pivot to a different topic. You can try, if you have the bandwidth, you can pivot to something that's more comfortable for you to talk about. If there's a if there's another political topic or a, a close to their heart topic that might be interesting to them, I don't know, education or retirement or I don't know, gas costs or if there's a if there's a topic that's more comfortable for you, sometimes you can pivot away from what you're currently discussing to that. Other times, it, it's totally okay to just say, "Hey, I'd like to talk about something else. Um, let's let's go do something else together. Let's go, I don't know, let's go cook together, or you know, let's go watch the grandkids play soccer or something." You have to set boundaries. It's okay to have boundaries. It's important to have boundaries. And it doesn't mean that you know, you're know you never going to face pushback for your boundaries. Um, and I think that it's important to acknowledge that as well. And that's all also okay. Healthy conflict is good. Conflict itself is not bad. And if at the end of the day, you pivoting and you setting and holding a boundary results in the maintenance of your relationship with your family member and being able to continue to love each other and say, hey, I'm going to let, let's talk about this more some other time. If that saves your relationship, who cares if you had to deal with a little bit of conflict? Who cares if they grumbled at you a little bit? Like you're, you're looking at the long game. That's, that's a really good point. What about in the workplace? When these conversations happen around the water cooler, do you have any additional or specific advice for coworkers? Oh, I am so frustrated by conversations in the workplace. Honestly, for the most part, I would just tell people, hey, I don't want to talk politics at the office. Like, I think that's a perfectly reasonable boundary to have. I, I don't have great recommendations for this because the reality is that policies inside different workplaces vary widely as do cultures. And sometimes, particularly in the Seattle area, uh, I've experienced that if you don't want to contribute to a political conversation, there's an assumption that you're in opposition and just that can lead to ostracization. Seattle is a deeply unhealthy environment for people who don't wish to be political progressives or even just don't wish to be vocal about politics. It's, it's rough. I'm not going to shortchange that. I just encourage people to say, I'm not, I don't want to talk politics at the office. I think that's a completely normal, healthy, fine, acceptable boundary. 
You can talk about lots of other things. You can talk about sports. You can talk about family. You can talk about friends. You can talk about relationships. Like, just no, let's let's not talk about our political policy and partisanship. That seems like a bad idea. So many things can go wrong with that in so many different ways, depending on different office policies, that it's hard for me to offer any particular um, guidance without knowing a background of a specific scenario. But this is important information to, for you to have shared, because I, I, and I hope that leaders, CEOs, board members, managers in, in corporations hear this is that there's a huge push in team building. Part of team building and building trust within an organization is to humanize members on your team. And as you get to know members on your team and you're encouraging that, be aware that if someone on the team has a very divergent point of view, are they still welcome on your team? Yes. Thank you so much for highlighting that. That is incredibly important. And if there's one message that I can put out to people who are thinking about HR and thinking about DEI, it is that diversity of ideology has to be included in your calculus because there are a lot of environments that are unwelcoming to people of different viewpoints. And that's not good for innovation. And that's something that drives us, especially in Seattle and the tech industry, but really everywhere. Now, that's how you come up with radical new ideas that improve the world by leaps and bounds is innovation. But you can't innovate if people are afraid to deviate from the status quo, if they're afraid to share their difference of opinion, because it might get them socially ostracized from the team, because it might be divisive, considered divisive in the workplace. And that's something that I hear literally all the time and also that I've personally experienced in the Seattle area as a conservative. Teams often and companies are often built now around a series of principles and often uh, the way that those sound is kind of like a list of progressive ideology. And if you don't fit that you feel extremely unwelcome and very concerned about your ability to say anything that pushes back on that. And I don't, you know, I say that as a white person, but I also say that having two friends who are very close to me who have quit jobs and one actually moved to Texas because they did not feel as though they could have a voice that was different from the majority opinion in their workplace, even though they are minorities, because they were so concerned about how their coworkers would perceive them and whether their management would develop them, not just develop them, but actually like push back that they would actually face negative ramifications as a result of their politics. And as a result of speaking up with a different viewpoint um, from management, like formally as their job. You mean professional development, professional development and promotion? Yeah, like they might they might be denied promotion. Um, maybe they'd be disciplined. Like they just felt very prohibited from any sort of contradictory viewpoint. They're just like me, but they happen to be of different ethnicity. but of like mind. And one of them was so frustrated that he quit his job and moved to Texas and now works for a company there where he feels much more comfortable in the culture and much more able to speak up, even though like he's Mexican Native American. He is much happier. But you know, I, I do think it's important to say that I don't think anyone intends to be evil. Right. Oh, absolutely not. So, so I will say this, you know, you, your passion in your workplace for your culture, if it is progressive, that's fine. But but it's the sensitivity piece where you can't hear the value of diversity. And and so, you know, when you were talking about the politics of, you know, the conversations that are, are being had in politics uh, with constituents complaining to a congressperson. You know, what you described is coercive power. Coercion 
to get what you want, to enforce your beliefs um, and the rightness of them. And then compliance is a validation of your power, right? If we remove that power of coercion, which does work, I'll just be honest, and there are leaders who use that as well, and lots of people in their personal lives, coercion works. It's one of the power structures, right? But there are other forms of power that work more effectively, healthier, and longer term. Assertion is an aspect in conversation that is huge because it preserves the dignity on both sides when you're being assertive, not aggressive. If you're not coerced, I forget what the the word is. We're having a bit of a difficulty with English today, but um, (laughs) you're not trying to force your beliefs on somebody else and make them comply with your, your, what you want. There are other ways of, and more powerful ways of, of getting people in your workplace to flow and work together. Right. So be aware of who doesn't fit and and find out why. And make sure that they still feel welcome to share and do what you can to make them feel as though they belong and as though they fit. And sometimes that might mean more conversations that cause discomfort for people. But discomfort in conversations, I think, is something that everyone should become more comfortable with, ironically. Too often, I think we strive for a feeling of safety in conversations, both on the left and the right. Hilariously, honestly, at Braver Angels, we hear pretty equally that um, Reds want to feel safe from, uh, as you mentioned, social coercion. They want to feel safe from ostracization. They want to feel protected from retribution, from professional retribution. Um, And Blues want to feel emotionally safe and feel protected from invalidation and from hate speech and from things that really that feel morally wrong to them. And somehow we use our ground rules to make both of those groups of people feel like they're relatively safe. Um, But we also emphasize in that, that, you know, you're engaging with everybody on the assumption of good faith. And also that you're going to feel uncomfortable sometimes. And you're going to have big feelings and that's okay. And you can voice those feelings. So this is where the, uh, one of the founders being a marriage and family therapist comes into play. There's definitely a therapeutic framework here. What's important is that you respond appropriately instead of responding emotionally, that you notice your reaction, that you notice your feeling, and then you think before you act you think before you respond and you ask yourself whether your response is in proportion and is the ideal response to continue the conversation with the person that you're talking to. Well, I'm so glad you said that because we're kind of uh, nearing the end of our time here. And I, that's a great segue to kind of wrap this up because, you know, you having difficult conversations is uncomfortable and messy and it can cause us to be triggered and go into our hind brain and you know and then it just we go down the rabbit hole of you know doom and despair <laughs> but in order to have healthy conversations uh, some of the things that I've heard you say is uh, you know we got to start off with a set of ground rules and be an active listener uh, and respect one another and treat one another with dignity is so important setting those boundaries of things that you might not want to talk about, or maybe uh, setting a timeline for how long you want to speak. And my favorite thing that Susan brought up was having that little escape pod or escape tactic exit strategy in your back pocket for when you're ready to kind of jettison out of the conversation and move on to a different topic, or just do something different so that you can maintain that loving relationship or, you know, professional relationship and trust within that conversation and between the two people, because we know this is hard to do. And, and I really like what you were saying about telling people that it's okay 
to say if you're uncomfortable or overwhelmed. And, and I think the other thing, too, is also being able to welcome that diversity of ideology into the conversation so that we, even though we're uncomfortable, we feel welcomed and uh, we can trust that we're able to say something in a safe space. Did I, did I get everything? What did I miss? <laughs> yeah, I think you did. I was just going to emphasize um, that you know, people don't have the opportunity to be understanding of your needs if you don't share them. And so it is so important to say when you're struggling with something or to say when you have big feelings about a topic, because that gives the other person the opportunity to be extra empathetic and understanding. And they might overreact to your reaction otherwise, if they're not aware of your struggle with it. And people can only know what they know. I love that. Thank you, Elizabeth for helping us figure out how to dig out of a hole when we were caught trapped in these conversations where we don't know where to go and they're difficult to have. And you've really helped us with this kind of framework of, you know, setting boundaries and so on. And I'm, if you want to learn more about this, what do we do? Where do we go? You can go to braverangels.org and find a local alliance, or you can email me at edoll, D-O-L-L, at braverangels.org, and I will connect you with our Western Washington Alliance. We have a pretty large group of people around Western Washington, and even a surprising number of national Braver Angels representatives right here in the Seattle area. And so I would love for you guys to get more involved. I'd love for you to try a workshop, experience all of the skill workshops and experiential workshops that we have to offer it's, it's a great community to be a part of, and we teach extraordinarily valuable skills that are useful in all aspects of life. And, and this is not just, Braver Angels isn't just for political groups, correct? You're in charge of uh, political conversations, but if I'm not mistaken, aren't there other arenas in which the training happens? So we focus on the partisan divide, on, red, on conversations across the red-blue divide. But in that, we also talk about the urban-rural divide. We go into racial divides a little bit, and we talk about religious divides just a little bit, because each of those usually has something of a role to play in the partisan divide. Um, but really, the, the red-blue divide is where the thing that we primarily focus on depolarizing. Uh, that doesn't mean that we are just involved with candidates and electeds, though we, we engage everyone. As I mentioned, we're a grassroots organization. Literally every single person in America is welcome and desired to join us. That's fabulous. I love hearing that. And it sounds very multidimensional. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you having this conversation with us. Thank you for listening to the Stop Digging Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please like, subscribe, and share with a friend, and connect with us on our social media channels. This podcast is powered by asquaredlamps.org.